and your Element bonus episodes are my way of thanking my patrons supporting me over on patreon.com slash inyourelement. My goal is to create additional content and deliver it to them a week before everybody else gets it. If you'd like to receive these bonus episodes early, as well as all future main episodes, consider showing your support on my Patreon page. As a patron, all of your episodes will also be ad-free. Other perks include access to Patreon-exclusive roles in the In Your Element Discord server, as well as being eligible for periodic giveaways. If you enjoy the show, join other Elementalists in supporting at the $1 level or above on patreon.com slash inyourelement. Now, on to the show. Welcome to another bonus episode of In Your Element, a gaming podcast. As always, I'm your host, Matthew Adler. Happy New Year to everyone. I hope you all enjoyed the holidays and time spent with family and friends. I also hope you played some great games. I want to take a moment to thank my patrons supporting me over on patreon.com slash inyourelement. These bonus episodes are my thanks to you. Before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to let you know where you can find In Your Element online. My website is at inyourelementpodcast.com. Find me on Instagram at inyourelementpodcast, on Twitter at iyepodcast, and if you have any questions for the show, email me at hello at inyourelementpodcast.com. I'll answer your questions on the next episode of In Your Element. So 2018 has come and gone and may go down in history as the best overall year in gaming. We got so many great games last year, it's hard to compile them into just a list of 10. But after going back and forth on so many titles, I finally settled on what are my personal favorites of 2018. I'd like to preface by saying that this list is completely subjective, based on my own personal opinion, as all lists like these are. With that being said, I'd like to begin with some honorable mentions for the year. So these are games that I considered including into my top 10, but I couldn't find a formal place for. However, I feel they were so impactful that they're still worth mentioning. The first game is one I picked up recently over the holiday on sale, and it's Hitman 2 for PlayStation 4. I've been playing this pretty steadily, and the more time I put into it, the more I believe it is one of the better experiences in gaming this year. The problem, however, is it came out in a year that is so crowded with big AAA titles that it's likely to get lost in the discussion. For those of you unfamiliar with the Hitman series, it's been around for over 18 years, starting back on PC in 2000 with the original release, Hitman, codename 47. It has had many iterations over the years, including a couple attempts at Hollywood movies, which ultimately failed. The first game in this series I played was Hitman Absolution back in 2012 on the Xbox 360. Having never experienced these games before, I was blown away by just how much you could do in these relatively small levels. The premise of the game is simple, find your target and eliminate them. What makes Hitman truly unique is the amount of creative freedom you have in executing your kills. The franchise was rebooted in 2016 with the release of Hitman, which brought an episodic approach to the series. I rented the game at the time, played through about half of it, enjoying what I played. The game was well received critically, but the episodic nature of the series did not fit, and IO Interactive remedied that with the recent release of Hitman 2. Hitman 2 may be just more Hitman, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. This franchise has been refined so much that nothing feels wasted. Level design is superb, giant maps, so many nooks and crannies to explore. The tagline for this game is the world is your weapon, and that couldn't be any truer. Everything at your disposal can be used to dispose of your enemies. 
The inclusion of mission stories is welcome for newcomers and veterans to the series, adding waypoints in the missions that you can follow that build a bit of backstory for the targets, and if followed properly, allow for some really satisfying kills. With a seemingly endless amount of disguises to acquire, the ability to take somebody down with just about any object, and a plethora of challenges to complete in each map, you'll be returning to Hitman 2 time and time again to try and assemble the perfect kill. I feel like this game released so late in the year that it got lost in the discussion, and will probably surface next year uh, after the dust settles a bit. Don't sleep on this game, it's a ton of fun. There's a trio of PSVR titles I'd like to mention that were all fantastic experiences for me this year as well. The first of these titles was Moss, which came out early in the year. Believe it or not, Moss was one of the games that I remembered seeing at E3 a couple years back and really made me consider purchasing a PSVR. It felt like the first real VR game that was built specifically for the platform and wasn't a short throwaway experience. After playing the demo that was released, I knew Moss was a day one purchase for me and I couldn't have been happier. The game didn't feel gimmicky as many other VR titles had. Instead, it was a simple puzzle platformer where you control Quill, a small mouse on an adventure to save her uncle from evil. What makes Moss really shine are the beautiful environments. You feel like you're truly inside of a small storybook diorama with these beautifully detailed environments. One moment in the game I'll never forget is looking up and seeing a full, life-sized deer staring at me and realizing that this world was almost completely to scale. The puzzles are never overly difficult, but they do make you think. The beauty of the game is being able to move your head around in VR uh, to peer around corners and find secrets in the game world itself. This was really the first true VR experience I had that blew me away, but it is overshadowed by a game I'll talk about later that made my top 10. With that being said, this first game is just the first chapter in Quill's adventure, and I can't wait to see what comes next. The next game in my trio of PSVR titles that I'd like to shed light on is Beat Saber. If you're a fan of rhythm games like Guitar Hero, Rock Band, Dance Dance Revolution, Frequency, or Amplitude, then Beat Saber is going to be right up your alley. What I really appreciate about Beat Saber though, as compared to the others in the rhythm genre, is the sheer simplicity of it. All you are using to hit the notes is your own two arms, and I guess your body. There are no buttons required, so really anybody can understand the game. The game has you wielding two different colored lightsabers, one in each hand, that you use to swing around and meticulously slice notes coming at you. Think Fruit Ninja meets Star Wars. The notes will have arrows on them indicating the direction to slice them. The game has a campaign mode, which felt to me more like a glorified tutorial. The real beauty of this game is chasing your own or your friend's high scores. There are additional modifiers you can turn on to make things easier or more difficult, like disappearing notes, faster song speed, or insta-fail, where the game ends if you miss a single note. Each of these things can vary your gameplay and add hours of fun. The game is also surprisingly good workout. In about an hour of play, I can burn around 600 calories or so. This game, next to Super Hot, is probably one of the best titles to make you feel like a true badass as you swing around the lightsabers. I've had friends and family play this and I love seeing the genuine joy on their faces as they experience this game for the first time. This game is a ton of fun. Currently there are 17 tracks in the game, which may seem low, but the developers have added two of those for free already and will be adding DLC packs in the future with additional songs. Another game that really took me by surprise this year was Tetris Effect. This game is playable without VR, but I really believe it is intended to be played in VR. I saw this game shown off at E3 last year and saw it was being produced by Tetsuya Mizuguchi and immediately knew I had to try it. 
If you're unfamiliar with Mizuguchi's work, he is most famous for his interactive sound design in games including the old PS2 and Dreamcast game Res and Res Infinite on PSVR, as well as my favorite puzzle game of all time, Luminous, which debuted back on the PSP. I was never a fan of puzzle games growing up. Sure, I played them from time to time, but nothing ever hooked me until I played Luminous. I'd never experienced a game that tied the visuals and the sound together in such a unique way. Tetris Effect does the same thing. It was a surreal experience for me, blending the, game, the classic gameplay with immersive visuals and an incredible soundtrack that seamlessly blends with your gameplay. Every time you rotate the tetrominoes or drop them, a bit of sound will play. As your stack grows, you realize you are contributing to the composition of the song playing. And, just as you're getting comfortable, the stage changes along with the visuals and the music. I tweeted about this game, describing it as Cirque du Soleil meets Tetris. As you're playing, these particle effects surround you, animals and other gorgeous visuals fill your peripheries. The game is a campaign mode that has you traveling through different visual locales, spanning from underwater to desert scapes to space. It's extremely challenging at times and will test your patience, but it's also an extremely relaxing and trance-inducing experience at times. Tetris Effect offers a truly unique experience for a genre I typically find stale after short periods of time. I know this next game may come as a shock to many people, but my last honorable mention is Red Dead Redemption 2. I'll preface by saying I played the original Red Dead Redemption back in the day, but didn't get very far, mainly because I grew bored of it. There's something about western-themed media that's never truly grabbed my attention, and I don't know why. Seeing trailers leading up to Red Dead Redemption 2, I knew this was going to be a hurdle I'd have to get over to truly enjoy this game. After all, I've played just about every other modern Rockstar game, and always enjoy them. I always have a bad habit, though, of never finishing any of their stories. I'm not sure what it is about Rockstar games, but I never feel compelled to finish their stories. With that being said, Rockstar has pulled out all the stops with this modern technical achievement, creating one of the most realistic worlds I've ever been able to explore. For once, I really felt like they might win me over, and I'd finally be engrossed enough to finish one of their campaigns. For the first 10 hours or so, it just wasn't clicking for me. I knew I was receiving critical praise from just about every outlet, so I knew there was something there. But then I read an article that said Red Dead isn't a game you should speed through. It's not intended to be played that way. In order to enjoy the slow pace of Red Dead's narrative, you too need to slow down. So for the next 10 hours or so, I slowed down, and it felt much more enjoyable. I realized that for the first time in what feels like forever, I actually began role-playing as Arthur Morgan. I truly put myself in his shoes and tried to live out this life of an outlaw. I enjoyed the game a bit more, but never found myself longing to play it when I was away from it for some reason. What I found lacking was compelling moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. Sure, there were some awesome missions and wonderful set pieces, but I never felt a true urge to play the game. It's also a game that overstates its welcome a bit. I think if the story were a bit tighter and Rockstar didn't lean so heavily into the realism, looting a damn wardrobe should not take an hour, I feel I would have enjoyed this a bit more. I dabbled in Red Dead Online when it first launched in beta and thought that it might excite me a bit more, but it felt like just more of the same, but with people riding around trying to shoot and kill you more frequently. I'm curious to see where the online aspect of the game goes in the next couple years. If it's anything like what they've done with GTA Online, then I'm sure it will be worth returning to at some point in the future. While this game may be at the top of many people's list this year, I can't seem to find a place for it on mine. And that brings us to my top 10 games of the year. Number 10 on my list is Dead Cells, available on all platforms. This seems like a year where just about every other indie game I played incorporated 
procedurally generated level design or had some roguelite elements incorporated into it. On the surface, Dead Cells may seem like another indie game trying to cash in on the retro look, but I assure you, it's a very special game. You drop in as a nameless, headless figure who must scour rooms and hallways, fighting enemies and powering up along the way. What I really enjoyed about Dead Cells, besides the beautiful art and aesthetic, is the fluid combat. There are so many weapons and powers at your disposal that you can use to slice and dice enemies, setting freezing traps or poisoning enemies in hopes that they will drop a cell for you to pick up. Each time you clear a level, you're forced to spend your cells to upgrade your character. You can choose to pour the currency into persistent upgrades that remain for all future runs, or make yourself stronger for just that specific run in hopes that you'll make it further. As you progress, enemies become more difficult, level design becomes more intricate, and the stakes become much higher. You will die a lot in this game, and that's okay, because each time you die, you start the next run a little bit stronger from any persistent upgrades or abilities you've discovered in the world. There's also a bit of a Metroidvania element, where certain abilities allow you to access specific areas, and once acquired, you have them forever. There are many different paths you can take from any given level, and plenty of secrets to discover. While I haven't truly beaten Dead Cells, I did get to the final area and it kicked my ass. It's a great game that you can jump into and play a few runs and still feel like you accomplished something, even if it was very minor. Another interesting aspect of this game are timed gates you will come across. Certain areas have a gate that will close after a specific amount of time has elapsed. While these areas aren't crucial for success, they offer a modest stash of cells hidden beneath them or a powerful weapon or upgrade for your character. It adds a bit of speedrun element to the game that is completely optional. So Dead Cells can be played through quickly to obtain specific items, or you can play it at your own pace, taking time to explore the Labyrinthian maps, taking down every enemy and uncovering every possible secret before moving to the next area. Overall, this is a very, very fun game with endless replayability. Number 9 is my favorite PSVR game of the year, and it's Astrobot Rescue Mission. What initially looked like a silly, generic mascot platformer ended up being one of the best experiences I've had this year, and a milestone in virtual reality gaming in my opinion. From the moment I entered the first level, I was immediately overcome with awe. Many outlets this year have said playing Astrobot feels like the first time you played Super Mario 64. That resonated with me, and something I wholeheartedly agree with. There is something special about this game, and you'll immediately realize it's doing something for the medium that will become the standard going forward. The gameplay itself is very simple and straightforward. It's a 3D platformer where you're controlling a single astrobot who must collect the missing pieces of his ship and all of the other little astrobots so they can return to their home planet. What makes this different from any other 3D platformer is that your head is the camera. So as you move the astrobot around, you yourself can stand up and look around different parts of the level to find secrets and platforms to access. The game does a great job playing with scale too as some boss enemies are gigantic, and you really feel as though you're looking up at these massive creatures. The game also incorporates the DualShock 4 controller in a very unique way that I haven't seen done before. For instance, different levels give you access to specific upgrades that you can use to traverse. One of these is a sort of grappling hook that you flick forward on the trackpad towards an area and it shoots out a rope that your astrobot can jump on to access other areas. Other upgrades include shurikens that you can fling forward using the trackpad, or a water stream that is reminiscent of Flood in Super Mario Sunshine. The levels are so well designed, throwing you into all sorts of environments from cloud kingdoms to claustrophobic caves and everything in between. 
The boss fights are also some of the most fun I've had and remind me a lot of the fights in Super Mario 64, Donkey Kong 64, Banjo-Kazooie, and more. This game is bursting with charm and one that should not be overlooked if you have a PSVR unit. I would also say this game is worth it alone for purchasing a VR unit and there's currently a bundle that includes Astrobot and Moss for $2.99 that was on sale during the holidays for $1.99 last year which is an absolute steal. The number 8 game on my list this year is The Messenger, available on Nintendo Switch and PC. This was a game that I heard a lot of chatter about, with many people immediately proclaiming it to be one of the best games of the year. Once it made it to the nominees list for the best indie game at the Game Awards, I knew I had to check it out. I picked it up right before the Game Awards aired and powered through it in a couple of sittings, and oh boy was I pleasantly surprised. The game starts out as a side-scrolling action game that clearly draws inspiration from Ninja Gaiden. The story is fairly generic. You're the last survivor of a village and are given a scroll you must deliver to the top of a mountain. At first it seemed a bit too generic to me, but then you meet the shopkeeper and everything changes. The game quickly becomes more than just delivering a scroll, and the interactions between you and the shopkeeper are some of the funniest writing I've seen in a video game. This is very much like Undertale humor, and it's done so well. About halfway through the game something happens that transports you into the future, and this is where the real game begins. The environments go from being 8-bit NES-inspired designs and music to these beautiful 16-bit Super Nintendo-era designs, complete with upgraded music. The game then goes from being a strict action platformer to a Metroidvania and has a few twists and turns along the way. There were a few parts of the game that had odd pacing, but overall the game was a pleasure to play through and I can't wait to play the free DLC Picnic Panic that releases later this year. The team at Sabotage Studio are incredibly talented, creating one of the best modern 2D games in my opinion, with a great story and fantastic gameplay. I cannot recommend this enough. The next game might have been the biggest surprise for me this year, and that's Pokemon Let's Go games on Nintendo Switch. Nintendo dropped a bomb earlier this year announcing a new Pokemon game was coming to Switch, complete with Pokemon Go integration. The news made a lot of fans angry because they felt like it was dumbing down the game and it didn't understand that this was a real Pokemon game or not. It also made a lot of fans, including myself, very skeptical. I held out my reservations for the game until I actually played it. What began as a return to Kanto ended up being one of the best pure Pokemon experiences I've had in a long time. They boiled the game down to the absolute basics, keeping true to the Gen 1 games, and delivered a shot of pure nostalgia for longtime fans of the series. I was anticipating playing through a bit of the game and probably putting it down and never returning. I really wanted something to satisfy that Pokemon urge, really. But after 50 hours and a complete Pokedex of 152, including the new Pokemon Meltan, I have to say it exceeded my expectations. One of the best things Game Freak did with this new game is allow you to see all of the wild Pokemon in the overworld, meaning there's no more random encounters. This is something I sincerely hope they keep in the series going forward because it made the game so much more enjoyable. Gone are the days of running through Mount Moon and hitting a Zubat every two seconds. Now you can just walk around them. I also didn't think I'd like the go catching mechanics for Pokemon, but with the introduction of catch combos and trying to chain these combos in the hope that you'd spawn a shiny variant of a Pokemon had me actually catching more Pokemon than I've ever caught in any version. I was actually compelled to complete the Pokedex for the first time since I was 8 when I got the original 151 in Pokemon Blue. There's an entire review cast episode I did on this game, so if you're interested and would like to hear more about my thoughts on this delightful game, I'd advise you to check that episode out. The next game on my list is Octopath Traveler for Nintendo Switch. 
This was a game that was revealed in the Switch's first year as Project Octopath Traveler, its working title. I thought it sounded ridiculous, and when I saw it was being developed by Square Enix, I knew it would be. What caught my eye, though, were the visuals for the game. They managed to take a game, make it look retro, but with modern lighting and detail. What it ends up looking like is a beautiful pop-up diorama that you're traveling in. The game has you controlling eight different characters, each with their own four-chapter story. Each character is a different class, with vastly different abilities. The beauty of this game is that you can choose which character's stories you'd like to play, in which order, and to what extent. Of course, I had to play through each character's story to completion, and was disappointed to find that there wasn't a true ending to the game that tied everything together. That's the only criticism for this game, really, is that the stories themselves are somewhat generic and very self-contained. The game would have been an absolute masterpiece if they tied it in and there was more meaningful dialogue between the characters. What the game does extremely well, though, is combat, music, and visuals. The combat is turn-based but offers a unique risk-reward system that lets you bank points during battle and unleash powerful attacks at the right time. The combat always felt like small puzzles that had to be solved as you uncovered enemy weaknesses and tried to break their defenses. This game has one of the best soundtracks I've heard in a while and I enjoyed listening to every moment during my 80 plus hour adventure. I hope to see another entry in the franchise because I think Square Enix have done a really something special with this game, but they need a larger emphasis on story to really hit it out of the park next time. The next game on my list is Detroit Become Human for PlayStation 4, the latest title from Quantic Dream, known for their heavy, narrative-driven games and quick-time event-focused gameplay. These games are very hit-or-miss for a lot of people, but for me, it hit at just the right time. I had wrapped up God of War and was looking for something to sink my teeth into. One of the studio's earlier games, Heavy Rain, I played back on PS3, never completing it. I remember it was one of the best-looking games visually for the time, but the gameplay I always felt was a bit awkward. I also did try and play it entirely with PlayStation Move controllers, so maybe that's why. I repurchased the HD remaster for PS4, along with Beyond Two Souls, with the intention of playing through and finishing the games. That never happened. So knowing I wasn't the biggest fan of these games, why did I pull the trigger on Detroit Become Human? The atmosphere and the potential story is the answer. I absolutely love sci-fi and futuristic movies, and anything to do with sentient beings potentially rising up and taking over sounds like something right up my alley. I was also really blown away by the gameplay demos they chose. They looked extremely compelling, and with the promise of so many potential decisions, it became a sort of choose-your-own-adventure, which I'm all for. I was pleasantly surprised by the amount of decisions that can be made in this game. The overall narrative was interesting, and at times had me on the edge of my seat. I know David Cage, the director, gets a lot of criticism for delivering his stories very heavy-handedly, but I still found the narrative enjoyable and, and believable at times. The three characters you cycle between are all interesting with their own motives and story, and it's very cool to see how each of these stranger stories intersect with one another, and how they impact each other. Overall, it's a great game with a decent amount of replayability if you enjoy trying to get different outcomes. The next game up on my list is Celeste, available on all platforms. This game came out in the very beginning of 2018 and remained in the conversation for the entire year, which is not just a feat for any game, but almost unheard of for an indie game. Celeste isn't just another tough-as-nails 2D platformer, it's one with a genuinely sincere and emotional message delivered flawlessly through the perfect marriage of narrative and gameplay. You play as Madeline, a girl overcoming her own mental incapacities as she ascends to the peak of a physical mountain. What you realize as you play through the game is she's climbing a metaphorical mountain of anxiety and other mental issues simultaneously. You feel the true emotion of this young girl, and as somebody who has lived most of life with anxiety, much of it is extremely relatable. 
Couple this with some of the best 2D platforming I've ever seen and a beautiful soundtrack that melts perfectly with the tone of the story, and you've got yourself a modern masterpiece. There's so much to say about Celeste, but it's truly a game you need to experience yourself. Sitting at number 3 on my top 10 list this year is Super Smash Bros. Ultimate for Nintendo Switch. As one of my favorite franchises of all time, and one I've had dozens of hours of fun with playing with friends over the years, I knew this game was going to be special. After playing Super Smash Bros. for Wii U and 3DS, and not having anybody to play with because hardly anybody had a Wii U, I was longing for this experience. When Super Smash Bros. was revealed earlier this year, as a surprise at the end of E3, my hype levels immediately shot through the roof. Nintendo slowly rolled out new characters throughout the year, and dropped a bomb on everyone when Sakurai claimed that every single character to ever appear in a Smash game would return for this ultimate matchup. I couldn't believe it. This felt like the pinnacle of the series, what it's all been building up to this whole time, and it really feels like not only a celebration of Smash Bros, but a celebration of gaming itself. With over 800 individual music tracks from games across the industry, and over 1300 unique spirits to collect that pay homage to so many classic franchises and characters, this truly is the best game in the series. The only issue I've had with it so far, which is no surprise to anyone who's played, is the online service. At times it's flawless, but other times the game slows to a crawl and seems like it's moving at a single frame per second, which of course is not ideal in a fast-paced game like Super Smash Bros. I also enjoyed the single-player adventure mode, World of Light, more than I was expecting to, achieving 100% completion in just over 25 hours. I will be doing a review cast episode for this game this week, so stay tuned for more on Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. My second favorite game of 2018 was Marvel's Spider-Man for PlayStation 4. This game was pure fun from start to finish and is something that most open world games don't achieve. It says a lot about your game if one of your favorite aspects is the traversal, and Insomniac Games absolutely nailed the web-slinging of Spider-Man. It feels so damn good to swing through Manhattan, and at times I would find myself zoning out just swinging because it was so mesmerizing. This is also one of the best pure Spider-Man stories ever told, and the fact that it's interactive makes it all the better. There are tons of side missions and collectibles, and a very obtainable platinum trophy if you're into that sort of thing. The combat is also very satisfying in this game, although I feel it could have been better with less gadgets. Normally, I'm all for an endless amount of gadgets, but with this game, I often forgot many of them existed or could be upgraded, even. I would generally stick with a lot of the same gadgets for the majority of the game, unless instructed to, other to do otherwise by a side quest. The unlockable suits are also a treat, and I found myself swapping between them so often just because they look so great. There are some interesting twists that the story takes that fans will really appreciate as well. The game also has three small DLC stories that you can play to continue Peter Parker's quest. I've only completed the first story thus far, and enjoyed it. I plan to play the last two soon. If you're interested in hearing more about my thoughts on Spider-Man, I recorded an entire episode about it earlier this year, so check that out. But overall, this was a fantastic game and deserves the spot it's in. And finally, what can be said about God of War that hasn't already been said thus far? This should be no surprise to anyone that it's on top of this list, as it's one of the best gaming experiences I've ever had. I remember seeing this game revealed a couple years back, thinking I probably wouldn't play it because I never got into the franchise in the past. The old games were fun, sure, but after a while they just became a repetitive mess of button mashing. The direction that Sony Santa Monica took with this version, however, was really intended to be a reimagining of Kratos as a character while paying homage to his past. The initial vibe I got watching the trailer for this game was that it looked a lot like a Norse version of The Last of Us. I couldn't have been more wrong. 
The game builds such a believable, emotional relationship between Kratos and Atreus. Watching both of them develop individually throughout the game was one of the most satisfying parts of the story. Arguably, the best part of the game, however, is the combat. It makes sense that such an emphasis on combat remains in a modern God of War game, but this Kratos is so much slower, much more methodical in his approach to combat, and it feels great. This time around, you wield the Leviathan Axe, which might be the best video game weapon ever created thus far. Throwing the axe is one thing, but pressing the button to recall it is something that does not get old. The sound it makes, paired with the perfect sense of vibration when it hits Kratos' hand, is like nothing I've ever experienced. There's so much love and detail put into this damn axe that you'll just want to throw it at just about every surface to see how it reacts. The environments are also some of the best I've ever seen in a video game. Each world is vastly different from the last, filled with vibrant colors and unique enemies. The small cast of characters are all extremely well written and likable. Another feat that Sony Santa Monica have achieved that I feel was initially one of the big selling points for the game uh, that seems to have gotten lost as the years gone on is that this game is done in one solid take. So that means zero loading screens as you traverse between worlds. It also means that the action never leaves Kratos. It's truly remarkable what they've been able to pull off when you take a step back and really think about it. Every single player narrative experience going forward is going to be compared to this game, and rightfully so, because it has set the standard for what a single player experience is and should be. Thank you Corey and the team at Sony Santa Monica for creating one of the best games of all time. Alright, well that's my list. Those are my top 10 video games of 2018. Thank you so much for listening to my thoughts and opinions, and I look forward to the games coming this year in 2019. I'd also love to hear what your top 10 games are for 2018. Tweet at me at IYE Podcast with your list. I'd love to hear what everyone played and loved this past year. If you have any questions for the show, email me at the email address hello at inyourelementpodcast.com. I'll answer your questions on the next episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use to listen to In Your Element. And take a moment to drop a five-star review on iTunes or in the Apple Podcasts app as it helps with discoverability for the show. Until next time, see you later, Elementalists. In Your Element bonus episodes are my way of thanking my patrons supporting me over on patreon.com slash inyourelement. My goal is to create additional content and deliver it to them a week before everybody else gets it. If you'd like to receive these bonus episodes early, as well as all future main episodes, consider showing your support on my Patreon page. As a patron, all of your episodes will also be ad-free. Other perks include access to Patreon-exclusive roles in the In Your Element Discord server, as well as being eligible for periodic giveaways. If you enjoy the show, join other Elementalists in supporting at the $1 level or above on patreon.com slash inyourelement. Now, on to the show.